You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, US President Donald Trump commits possibly the world's first instance of real-time witness intimidation on live television. We'll ask why Italian authorities seem so surprised that there is a lot of water in Venice. We'll round up the big stories from an eventful week across Latin America. And we'll find out why one Finnish radio station thinks its listeners want 24 solid, unceasing, remorseless hours of this. Yep, got the idea. Cheers. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. We'll start in the United States, where impeachment proceedings are continuing, taking a long, hard look at the conduct of President Donald Trump in his interactions with Ukraine. Today's star turn has been Marie Yovanovitch, a career American diplomat who was the US ambassador to Ukraine until abruptly recalled by President Trump in May. Her testimony, it is fair to say, has fallen a stretch short of complete exoneration of Trump's behaviour. An arguable highlight among many choice quotes was the ambassador's estimation that she was smeared out of her post with the participation and acquiescence of the President of the United States, who, by the way, appeared to be following proceedings avidly, live-tweeting witness intimidation with his tiny thumbs. Well, joining us now from Monocle's Toronto Bureau is Thomas Lewis, who has been following ongoings in Washington. Um, Thomas, briefly, what have we learned today? Well, today we have learned that the former ambassador, the US ambassador to Ukraine, uh, was intimidated, as you put it, kind of effectively out of her post and that she felt that directly. We had heard those words in her closed testimony, the portions of which that had already been published uh, by the Democrats on the committee that's overseeing this impeachment inquiry. Um, She confirmed that in person today. Those hearings will take place for the rest of the day here on Capitol Hill. There's a recess happening right now. But at the moment, uh, from um, Ms. Ivanovich, the former ambassador, we have heard that she uh, did feel intimidated and was deeply troubled by the way the President of the United States himself was conducting uh, conducting business towards Ukraine. And as you say, Donald Trump has launched into a pretty extraordinary stream of thought, kind of tirade against her. I think most diplomats in the US are if they hadn't had their eyebrows raised before, by the way, of the allegations towards uh, a U.S. ambassador by a sitting U.S. president, then they certainly will now. It really has been quite an extraordinary stream of reaction from the White House so far this morning. And I'm sure there's more of that to come today as the testimony continues. Uh, We do need to talk about this in some detail, I think, Thomas, because Trump reacting to things on TV is not unusual because watching TV and reacting is, is pretty much most of what he does all day, for which I suppose we should in some respects be grateful. But he was tweeting insulting things about Ambassador Yovanovitch while she was testifying. These tweets were actually read out to her in the midst of her testimony, to which she responded um, that she felt intimidated. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in US criminal law, but my understanding of it is that witness intimidation is pretty much what a witness says it is. Has Trump basically just committed another potentially impeachable offence live on television? 
Um, I think the Democrats will certainly be looking into that, Andrew, in, in a serious way. I think what Donald Trump has done so far is, whether knowingly or not, is that he's tried to sort of push the boundaries of what um, his behaviour will allow him to do. Of course, let's not forget, it's what actually won him the presidency in the first place, stating things that have never been stated before in a presidential campaign, about Mexicans, for example, about those with disabilities, just to name two things off the list. And for whatever reason, they worked for him in the 2016 race in the heat and the sort of pretty, you know, febrile tone that that race took. So I think what he's trying to do is what he knows best, sadly. Um, And I think he knows that he's in genuine trouble here. Of course, you know, he, by admitting that he had had this phone call with Ukraine in the first place, he did so as a matter of pride, it seemed, in a little gaggle of the press outside the White House a good few months ago by this stage. And that is, of course, what uh, brought this impeachment uh, hearing to be. I think, you know, Donald Trump's political toolbox isn't particularly broad or nuanced, I think it's fair to say. So I don't think it's surprising that this is what he's resorting to now. And I think, you know, with the likes of Rudy Giuliani on side. I think it's kind of a very much a strategy of, let, well, let's storm into the tea shop first and then clear up the mess after. Um, I think what this impeachment hearing, these public hearings so far this week have shown us is that, you know, there are some very real and concrete things that a US president cannot do while in office and that the hope is that they can get the public on board with saying that this isn't a matter of politics now, this is a matter of the law. Uh, and I'm sure the events of this morning will... Um, will play into that for Democrats as they continue their proceedings too. Uh, Thomas, just finally, it's relatively early in the day when where you are, so it's probably a bit early to see quite how this is going to shake out across US media. But what has been interesting already is that even some hosts on Fox News, usually a reliable pro-Trump organ, are expressing an amount of unease with his behaviour today. Yes, and I think we've seen increasing an increasing number of moments like those in the past few few months, Andrew, from his allies at Fox News and other right-wing allies as well. I think what's been interesting really is now that this has gone public, if you like, if you look at sort of past impeachment hearings, these public hearings were really, you know, the only thing that Americans were watching. I believe, you know, some 20 million people were tuning in uh, during the time of the, the Nixon impeachment inquiry, for example, you know, the, the media is a much more sort of diffuse place now. And obviously, where you get your media can be dictated by the political affiliation or the social affiliation you have, whatever social media platform you use, for example. So I just wonder kind of what Democrats are calculating is how, you know, never mind how explosive and concrete a lot of these allegations have been already so far this week, particularly from Bill Taylor, uh, the acting ambassador for the US and the Ukraine, who added new information uh, to our understanding of that phone call between the president of the Ukraine and Donald Trump this week. You know, whether you know, the the partisan, the highly partisan way that this is being discussed actually will mean that the this won't be having the kind of effect that perhaps the, the public sight of these very experienced people testifying against a president had in previous examples of impeachment. Um, I think the Democrats will just want the facts to speak for themselves, frankly, and I'm sure as uh, Yovanovitch continues to testify today, there'll be plenty more for both sides uh, to pick, pick over and to s- sort of try and get 
get the message that the President of the United States has done wrong in this case and that that is not okay in, in American politics and in America's way of life. Thomas Lewis, thank you for joining us. Let's look now on the House View at Venice, where this week's floods, already historically bad, seem to be getting worse. A new high tide of 1.6 metres has deluged the city, forcing the closure of St Mark's Square and the suspension of Vaporetti services, among other restrictions. The floods will cost the Italian taxpayer a tidy stack. Flooded homes and businesses in Venice will receive 5,000 and 20,000 euros compensation respectively, and more than 80% of the city may now qualify, and this will not be the last bill these and future floods present. I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's Chiara Ramella. Um, it always strikes me, Cara, that it's, it's, it's quite weird to talk about floods in Venice. I mean, it is by definition permanently flooded. How bad does it have to be before even Venetians start thinking, yeah, this is pretty bad? Well, yes, Aqua Alta is a natural phenomenon, but the occurrence of it in recent times is absolutely unnatural because if you consider the fact that you know Venice has existed in coexistence with water for centuries and centuries this is true um this last century has been disastrous in terms of the occurrence of these aqua alta phenomenons so within the region of 18 90 centimeters the venetians consider it perfectly normal it's it's manageable essentially most homes and shops will have um what the venetians called paratie so Essentially, aluminium, well, metal uh, panels that cover the entrance to um, to 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 the, to the doorways. Um, this is really quite terrible when you consider that the highest level of water this week was 187 centimeters, and that's only a few centimeters short from the disastrous 1966 um, flood that caused millions of damage. I mean, these floods are getting worse, and they are happening more often. Are are there worries in Italy that these could be an existential threat to Venice, that Venice may become ultimately unsustainable, unlivable and unvisitable? Well, I think I definitely think that's the case. <laughs> it's it's quite obviously so. I mean, there are people who say that within a century, Venice could be completely submerged. Um, Where sea sea levels are rising, and the problem is existential, also with regards to the population, because fifty years ago, one hundred fifty thousand people used to live in Venice. Nowadays, that number is only fifty thousand people, and the city is becoming increasingly unlivable for people because it is overrun with tourists. Because there's hardly any other way of making a living mm. other than working in tourism, and if the occurrence of these floods is going to continue as it is, and if the floods are going to destroy businesses and homes, people are not going to want to live there, well, and indeed- the city is going to become a ghost town, and that's. A tragedy in my eyes. Uh, no, it's, it, it would be a tragedy in the world's eyes, I think. But obviously, none of this is news to anybody in Italy. What, what attempts uh, or propositions have been made for protecting Venice, and, and why aren't any of them working? Well, it's, this is another great Italian tragedy the seeming inability to make infrastructural plans that feel concrete. Um, The Mose is the most talked about infrastructural solution to the flooding problem. It had been discussed for decades. The the construction officially began, I think, in 2003. Uh, It's still not completely finished. This is some sort of tidal barrier or something. Yes, it's a a tidal barrier that consists of 57 different barriers. Uh, The problem with this is, A, it costs an incredible amount of money like billions of euros Um, and b it's still not working it might be working by 2021 but when it does 
get to completion. It might be too obsolete. And also it may not actually work because it might be too late. By it, There are people suggesting that the barrier would have to stay up all the time to counteract the level of the sea rising. And if you do that and you make the Venetian lagoon kind of a self-contained lagoon rather than being open to the open sea, you create an environment that's actually unsustainable. It becomes like a Petri dish where like algae and Mm. all sorts of, you know, the environment wouldn't be sustainable. So the barrier might not even be useful when it is completed anyway. Just as a final quick thought, Venice's mayor, who is not usually held to be one of life's natural progressives, has been quite clear about the relationship, as he sees it, between the flooding and climate change. In Italian politics generally, is climate change seen as a a great motivator? Is it an issue? Uh, well, there's news that has actually made the rounds around the world about the fact that Italian schools will start teaching climate change, which I think is a good sign. Um, it's quite ironic because the uh, local government in Venice was discussing climate change plans just these days. And as the right-wing-led coalition rejected climate change plans, literally minutes after this, the council chamber flooded from the floods. I mean, it's ironic. It's I, I still find it horrendously tragic. I find this whole issue issue and horrendously tragic, but it's genuinely quite ironic. Chiara Ramella, thank you for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Time now for our weekly reflection on what, if anything, the last seven days have taught us. We learned this week that some people never will. Here in the UK, Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage made the widely expected announcement that his glorious storming of the bastions of British democracy next month will be scaled back to an apologetic tapping on the drawbridge. The Brexit Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. This was news to many Brexit Party candidates who had paid £100 each even to have their applications considered and had made further investments in their suddenly cancelled campaigns. Money they could have spent on snake oil, magic beans or part shares in Tower Bridge. We did not learn, however, what is in a report by Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee looking at Russian interference in recent British elections, and possibly more significantly, referendums. The report has been in the possession of 10 Downing Street since last month and cleared for publication. The government has decided not to release it until after the coming election, however. Former Conservative Justice Secretary David Gork, who chaired the committee which wrote the report, had some distinctly non-party line views on this. Perhaps this is why he is now running as an independent and urging people not to vote for his old party. I just think it is too much of a risk for the economy if we are going to find ourselves crashing out uh, without a deal at the end of 2020. And I don't think that the Conservative Party is being straight with the British people as to the choices that we face and the implications of those choices. 
On the Atlantic's other shore, we learned that the impeachment proceedings investigating the conduct of US President Donald Trump are going to be as edifying a spectacle as might have been imagined. I want to emphasize at the outset that while I am aware that the committee has requested my testimony as part of impeachment proceedings, I am not here to take one side or the other or to advocate for any particular outcome of these proceedings. The first witnesses to testify, stolid, serious career diplomats, did their best but could not quite disguise the impression that they are, in essence, narrating a clown car demolition derby. Elsewhere, we learned that the melancholy fraternity of exiled leaders has swelled by one as ousted Bolivian President Evo Morales was granted asylum in Mexico, a popular destination for the unhorsed and unwanted. We learned this week that even the most brutal demonstrations of the elemental furies will not teach people what they are determined not to learn. In Australia, an area larger than Cyprus has been incinerated by bushfires shocking not only in their scale, but their timing. By historical standards, it is far, far too early in the summer for this kind of thing, though Australia's Deputy Prime Minister is among those who'd rather see climate change as someone else's invention than his problem. We've had fires in Australia since, well, from since time began. And what people need now is a little bit of sympathy, understanding and, and real assistance. They, they need help. They need shelter. Not but, the but why is it, some, why is well, it wrong to the, ask the, those questions? Well, they don't need the ravings of some pure, enlightened and woke capital city greenies at this time. And in Venice, with due acknowledgement that they were always kind of asking for trouble by building a city in an actual lagoon, we learned that local authorities have somehow managed to be unprepared for Venice's canals ending up in Venice's houses, restaurants and museums. Here's Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella. A conversation about building a tidal barrier to protect a city began decades ago. That project, called Mose, is still far from completion, marred by overspending and corruption scandals. And to go back to where we came in in a week, another week, in which those who complain about being governed by elites have done quite a good job of demonstrating why we were asking elites to govern us in the first place, the journalist Joel Stein told us why he's written a book, defending those who probably need defending least. I am not talking about rich people. I'm talking about the intellectual elite. So these are the people who care less about having a yacht than giving a TED talk. These are, I think, the Monica listeners. So I'm talking about people who care much more about ideas than gold plating everything in their house. And with that sweep of the horizon from the ivory tower in the metropolitan bubble for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Mullet. Now, it is rarely fair to say that a given week in South America has been a quiet news week. It's a big place and lots of people live there, so lots of stuff happens. It is fair to say, however, that this week has been tumultuous, verging on outright tempestuous, or possibly the other way around. I'm not sure where they both fit on the scale of general brouhaha. Uh, I'm joined now by our own Fernando Augusto Pacheco to survey recent developments. Um... 
actually, Fernando, I, I will literally ask the question, where do you start with Latin America this week? Well, it, it's interesting. So many things have been happening, but I think perhaps the start of all those news from Latin America was actually Chile, uh, where you know massive protests started after uh, a hike in the price of the public transport there. Do you think there's a relationship between those and the protests which then filled the streets of La Paz demanding that President Morales sling his hook? That's what I, what, I, what I want to make it clear here. Actually, I'm not sure if that much, because in the okay. past there were movements like the Pink Tide movement Movement, you know, those leftist governments. So clearly you could see something cohesive in the con- continent. But now it, it is very hard. I read uh, a, an article about a Brazilian journalist, Silvia Colombo, saying it's so hard comparing Chile and Bolivia. I mean, Chile is a fairly wealthy country. Uh, you know, they've been doing actually quite well economically. Bolivia, on the other hand, uh, the, the only country in South America where I have the majority are indigenous population as well, and also quite poor. I'm sure there are some influence. I mean, when you see people mm. protesting, I'm sure. He, but it's not like it happened a few years ago with that pink tide of leftist governments. I think it's quite complex. And I think every country has its own history. But of course, I can see Latin America dividing now between kind of the more left wing and the more right wing governments. This is happening for sure. Which countries do you see falling on which side of that divide, though? Because it remains to be seen quite who is going to end up in charge in Bolivia. But we have had, I mean, I I don't know if it counts as sort of pink tide too, a sort of left-wing populist elected in Mexico, a centre-left-ish government elected in Argentina following its centre-right-ish government. Where do you think the splits are in the continent now? Well, let's start with the left. Clearly, Mexico uh, and Argentina will be the main countries. I mean, they're one of the two of the biggest economies uh, in the continent besides Brazil. Uh, and, and of course, Obrador, I mean, welcoming Evo Morales with his political asylum. Mm. That's kind of a sign to say, you know what, we are with you. Uh, and and you're, you're talking about Bolivia. You know, I hope there will be new elections uh, soon, but Evo Morales will not be able to be the candidate. And from what I can see, uh, the current uh, interim president, Janine Agnes, she's very conservative, come from the Christian party. Uh, you know, so there is a worry there, uh, you know, that, again, how fair will be the elections. But of course, but even the election where Evo Morales was competing... It was not fair. You know, there was a, a report uh, saying that actually there's been a little bit of fraud there. And even Evo Morales said, you know what, let's have another election. But then the military took over. Uh, so that's why there's a little bit dispute as well. Some people say it's a military coup. Uh, other doesn't. Even the international media is fairly divided on that. I, my personal opinion, I, I don't like the military. I think especially because of our past uh, in Latin America. But I have to say, people are divided on this topic, so it's quite controversial. There is another election due in Latin America. This is Uruguay on November 24th. Will that teach us anything, do you think, about what the centre of political gravity in Latin America now is? Well... Again, uh, Uruguay, again, one of the most peaceful uh, countries in South America, very, you know, they did very well in recent years. They're very socially progressive. The left has been in power there for, uh, you know, more than a decade. So... You know, again, in the second round is the candidate from the left, Daniel Martinez, which mm-hmm. might continue the government, or La Calle Poe from the centre-right. I think the centre-right might win. But again, is Uruguay tooting to the right or they're just, or, or the, the left-wing party there is just a bit tired and they want a change of government? So I don't think it's going to be kind of a massive change in Uruguay. And of course, let's not forget Brazil. For Brazil was kind of a big change. We have a far-right government. There's a clear division there. Uh, Lula out of jail. Again, 
it's it's a shame because the country will be polarized and in 2022 will be Bolsonaro versus Lula again. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for the moment. Do stick around, however, for our last item, which I believe is in some respects germane to your interests, because finally, as is becoming increasingly traditional at this juncture in the House view, a story conveying the unmistakable implication that Finland is a deeply weird country populated by morbidly taciturn bucket hoarders, who also, it turns out, consider this to be their greatest bequest to culture. That was Sandstorm by the Finnish disc jockey Darude. It is 20 years old today and one Finnish radio station Hitmix plans to celebrate this auspicious anniversary by playing Sandstorm back-to-back for 24 merciless hours. Well, taking a short break now from listening to Sandstorm for 24 hours to join me uh, is Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Uh, we apologise, Marcus, for taking you out of this important national ritual of communing with your people as you listen to Sandstorm by Derud for 24 hours, but you can get back to it in a few minutes. Um, Marcus, what's going on here? I mean, not just with this particular story, but why do you keep putting stories in the running order of this programme, <laughs> conveying the impression that your people are in Insane. I mean, there is so much fun stuff happening in Finland. <laughs> um, this is a very important day for Finland, as you mentioned. <laughs> 20 years since the Roots Sunstorm was released. And I bet you may not remember where you were when this song that became is true, number Marcus. three in the I, UK I, singles I, chart. I, I, do I, not, do, I do not remember where I was when I, this became I, number three I, in the I UK singles chart. I do remember exactly where I was in, in the summer of 2000, I believe, when it finally was released in the UK and was a massive hit. I think... it. it, it you know, when you look at Finnish music scene and you quite often hear that Sibelius is the greatest Finnish composer, well, he passed away, what, 70 years ago already and he did classical music. His music hasn't infiltrated the Finnish society the same way as Darud did with this song because you simply cannot escape this song. Marcus, are you really trying to float Darud as a 21st century Sibelius? Pretty much, actually. <laughs> um, you definitely hear this song more often on the radio nowadays than you do hear of Sibelius' music in Finland if you listen to any mainstream radio stations. Um, what is important about this song, it's still by today the most successful, at least it was the first song to make it to the top three in the UK singles chart. It was the first Finnish music video to be played by MTV Music Television the in the United States. The competition States. hasn't been murderous, in fairness. And... Yeah, but at the same time, Finland is a small country with short history. It's turning 102 years next month. And I think part of being Finnish has been always about trying to prove yourself, your place in the world. And when we created a song that topped the charts the world over, we felt like we were actually succeeding in that. And I think one example that... you not at all by the fact that it's clearly a very bad record? It's an amazing record, Fernando. You have to join this discussion now. I think I think it, it's it's a great record as well. I think it touched a nerve, at least for fans of of, of trans pop from from Europe. <laughs> and also, know? I have to point out that when Finland turned hundred years, we had official celebrations at the Central Square of Helsinki, and they were playing this track when we had the clock ticking in front of us to the moment when Finland was officially one hundred years is there, old. It was an amazing moment. Is there a movement afoot to actually make it your national anthem? It would liven up Olympic Games. I think, no it's, I think it's already the unofficial one. 
Why do you think it is, though, Marcus, that Finland has been disproportionately terrible at pop music? Because we, as we have discussed before, Finland has been disproportionately amazing in some fields, notably uh, racing drivers, weirdly. You seem to be able to produce numbers of those out of all proportion to your actual numbers generally, whereas the Swedes just next door have a rich and profitable pop tradition, whereas Finland doesn't so oh, much. Oh, believe me how much we've been talking about this and wondering about that in Finland, and there's been so many surveys conducted about that research and questionnaires. And I think one conclusion is that when we compare Finland, Finnish music industry, to what's going on in Sweden, Sweden has got longer traditions in music education. And also there is... You know, thanks to ABBA, actually, Sweden has been more international as a music country for decades longer than Finland. And as a matter of fact, when this song, Sandstorm by Darude, became a big hit, we actually were expecting that Finland would kind of turn into Sweden in, in the music sense, hasn't, that hasn't Darude would be really... the Waterloo by ABBA that would finally <laughs> unblock the potential we've been having in Finland. It didn't, it kind of started well because we did have another big hit in the UK. We had, don't forget, we had Bonfunk MC's Freestyle, but after that it's been a bit quieter when it comes to Finnish music internationally. But Marcos, every time I look at the global countdown, it's funny because the Finns, they like their own music. You're, there are a lot of Finnish artists in the top five, which is quite unusual for certain countries. So, I mean, at least in Finland, they are enjoying themselves. Uh, well, yes, it gives them something to hum to themselves while they queue for buckets. Marcus. Mm, that's true. And the buckets, well, I guess our listeners have to download the edition of Monocle's House View from a few years ago, a few weeks ago, when I actually explained what that story is all about. I, th- I think they might be happier not knowing. <laughs> just, just just seriously, listeners, take our word for this. Finland and buckets uh, is a thing. Marcus Hippie and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both very much. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Menu. Monocle's House View returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Mullet. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.